I was reminded of a story this past week of 21st century writer, a guy by the name of Hunter Thompson, uh, who was so obsessed with the writings of F. Scott Fitzgerald, and specifically his book, The Great Gatsby, that he decided to type out the entire book, um, all 47,094 words, just for himself, it wasn't for anybody else, so that he could explore every aspect and discover any hidden secrets that it may hold. Now, his hope uh, was to experience what it was like to write a masterpiece word for word. He wanted to take a deep dive into this book and into the mind of the author. This reminded me of someone in the New Testament. Uh, We get the sense that the Apostle Paul felt the same way about knowing and living for Jesus, but I would say in a much greater way. This is what Paul wrote in the New Testament book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. He said, "Once I once thought these things were, were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. So Paul considered everything the world has to offer as completely worthless compared to the infinite value of knowing and living for Jesus. There's nothing as great as knowing Jesus. After meeting the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus, uh, Paul's life was forever changed. If you read his letters, we learn that he lived out the rest of his days in an endless pursuit of knowing God more and dying to self as he faithfully fulfilled God's plan for his life. And this is my prayer for our church family every single week. That when compared to the infinite value of knowing and living for Jesus, we would count everything else as worthless. My prayer is that God would grow in us a sincere love for him and for other people. My prayer is that we would gather together each week ready to worship God and learn from his word of being sent out as faithful kingdom workers for God. This is the opportunity that we have today. We have the great privilege of opening up, opening up the timeless message of the Bible, learning together, of being equipped to be the people God has called us to be, and then sent out with the opportunity to apply these truths to our lives. I don't know about you, but I look forward to our time every single week. And friends, I hope that you've come today ready to learn and ready to grow in your Christian walk. Let's begin our time today in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for bringing us together today. I thank you that for generation after generation, uh, you have preserved your word faithfully for your people. Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that your mercies are new every day, just like what we sang about this morning. And just now as we uh, read your word, I ask that you would be our teacher, that you would help me step out of the way, and that your word is what people would take with them this week. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you happen to be a guest with us this morning, uh, we're in the final week of a message series called The Foundation of Faith. We've been spending the bulk of our time in Luke chapter 8. And a major theme that we see in Luke 8 is how to get faith 
and how to put that faith to work in the everyday experiences of life. It was James who wrote about uh, faith without works is not really faith. Faith without works is dead. And so we want to put our faith to work, and the Bible gives us the tools for how we can do that. You know, we're called to be people of faith, and so I think this is a timely series for our church family. And we're working through Luke 8, verse by verse, and I had a conversation with someone this morning, and uh, she said, you know, recently you've been talking about things that I've never heard before. Actually, two conversations today that were very similar. And I said, well, that's what happens when you go to a book of the Bible and you just go through it. We don't have the luxury of just skipping because we don't want to talk about something. And so today we're going to hear another story uh, that may bring up some things that uh, you've never heard before uh, or remind you about some important truths that are not always talked about. You know, like Hunter Thompson's obsession with the book The Great Gatsby, um, here at OCC, uh, we are obsessed with God's Word. We, we love the Bible. We want to know God more by knowing His Word. And so today's message, I think, will be an appropriate ending to our series um, as we're going to talk about how it's impossible, and I don't use that word lightly, it's impossible to hide a life that's truly been transformed by Jesus. It's impossible to hide a life that's been transformed. I like how Craig Rochelle says it. He says, a faith worth having is a faith worth sharing. This is something that we're going to clearly see in today's message. And now, because the length of the passage that we're going to read today is is, uh, quite long, I'm going to break it down into two parts. And the first part, if you have a Bible with you, is found in Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 48. Um, You can use your phone, your tablet, and like always, I have the words on the screen today. So let's think about this in two parts. Uh, It's meant to go together. So part one, this is what we read. On the other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed Jesus because they'd been waiting for him. Then a man named Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. You see, his only daughter was about 12 years old, and she was dying. As Jesus went with him, he was surrounded by the crowds. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, and she could find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. Everyone denied it, and Peter said, well, Master, this, this whole crowd is pressing up against you. I read that kind of like he was saying that sarcastically, right? There's a lot of people around. A lot of people are touching you. But Jesus said, someone deliberately touched me, for I felt healing power go out from me. When the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of him. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she'd been immediately healed. Daughter, He said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So when Jesus returned to Capernaum, remember he started there. He went across the lake. There was a huge storm. But when Jesus returned to Capernaum, large crowds of people welcomed him. And this was a lot different. This is a different kind of reception than what he and the disciples had received on the other side of the lake. Now there were two people in particular Uh, who couldn't wait to see Jesus. And and the way we read this, I get the sense that uh, maybe meet him for the first time. 
It was a man and a woman who were each going through major life storms. Now, the contrast between these two people is important to note because it reminds us that anyone can come to Jesus. You know, I think sometimes we get it in our head that you have to look a certain way, talk a certain way, act a certain way before you can come to Jesus. That's not the case. The gospel is for everyone, friends, and the ground is level before the cross. Amen? Anyone can come to Jesus. The man's name is Jairus, uh, but the woman is anonymous. We're not given her name. Uh, Jairus was a wealthy leader of the local synagogue, but the woman was a poor resident who had spent all of her time and money trying to get well. The man was desperately interceding for his daughter who was sick and dying at home, while the woman was desperately hoping to find help for herself. Jairus had experienced 12 years of joy with his daughter but was now racing against the clock to find a way to save her life. And while this woman, she had experienced 12 years of suffering and was now hoping to get well. I think that just shows you the contrast between two people when they come to Jesus. I think about Sunday mornings when we come together. I mentioned this to one of our elders today. You know, we never know what someone's going through when they walk through these doors. You may be coming to Jesus and you've had 12 years of joy in your life. You also may be coming to Jesus and you've had 12 years of pain, 12 years of suffering and heartache. Well, after exhausting all other options, uh, both of them, as different as they may have been, they came to the feet of Jesus. And let's first talk about the woman and the miracle that she experienced in her life. Um, This woman had a hidden need. This isn't something that she just verbally told everyone about, although it's something that people knew about. It's a burden that she had to live with for 12 years. This condition affected her in a number of ways. It affected her physically. She was always in pain. It affected her socially. She was always alone. It affected her spiritually. She was unable to gather with other Jews for fellowship and for for worship. Now, according to the Old Testament law that we find in Leviticus chapter 15, when a woman was, was menstruating, she was considered ceremonially unclean for seven days. Now, you may hear something like that, and you go and you read this law, and you think, well, that's just crazy, right? In Bible time, they just had these crazy laws. Like, maybe to you that seems like suppressive or whatever. But let me remind you that this law was given over 2,000 years before germ theory was invented. These rules may sound harsh, but you have to realize God was actually giving these rules and these laws um, to protect his people from disease, Again, far before we knew about this. In fact, if you go to the book of Leviticus, um, the water of of purification that's outlined there and then also in in Numbers was a precursor um, to lye soap. Let me explain this for a second. So in the Old Testament, they were actually instructed to take the ashes of animals, dead animals, and mix it with water. And they were to use that as part of their cleansing uh, purification process. Well, fast forward many, many years. The very first lye soap that was invented um, used wood ashes, animal ashes, animal fat, and water. I just think that's amazing. Like, is anybody else amazed by that? That that 2,000 years before we we discovered germ theory, God was giving these rules and these laws to his people not to oppress them, but to protect them. 
And we see that over and over again. And the Old Testament book of Leviticus is one of those books that you, you think about even beginning to try to read it, and it sounds so confusing. But when you take a deep dive, you just see God's provision on every page. It, it is amazing. And so I would encourage you to go home and read about that and, and learn about that because it may give you a different perspective and a more biblical perspective on what God was doing in the lives of his people. It truly is amazing. Obeying God's law then saved people from possible disease and even death. And so we have to think about it in those terms. Yes, this would have been extremely terrible. It affected this woman, you know, physically, socially, spiritually. And during that time, nobody was allowed to touch her. Anything that she touched was considered unclean, not just for seven days, but for the entire time because she was constantly bleeding. Now we have to put ourselves in her shoes the best that we can. And because of this condition, for 12 years straight, she wasn't allowed to have any human contact, any human interaction during that time. All right, that, that's like the pandemic times 100. You think about maybe during that time how lonely it was for a lot of people. She had to go through life completely alone. I shared this story with my wife this past week, and she had an interesting response. She said, you know, this was like being a leper, but worse. You see, at least lepers had other lepers. This woman had no one. She was saying at least lepers could be around other lepers. This woman couldn't be around anybody. Isolation, loneliness, suffering, pain, anxiety, uh, deep depression, a, a feeling of worthlessness, a lack of hope. These were all emotions that she likely experienced. Imagine having to live with this for 12 years. This was heartbreaking. But when all hope seemed lost, she had exhausted all resources. She crossed paths with a rabbi by the name of Jesus. Verses 43 and 44 that a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding and she could find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. Can you imagine? Suffering for 12 years. You've, you've exhausted all resources. You've tried everything. Everything the doctor prescribed. Your last hope. And then it just stops. You've been cured. Now, you have to wonder... If this woman's faith was almost superstitious at this point, you know, was she willing to reach out to a complete stranger because there were literally no other options? She knew that this Jesus had healed others. She'd, she'd heard his name. She'd heard the stories. So maybe if you catch him on the right day, maybe he could do the same for her. Weak, wounded, she decided to risk everything by fighting her way through the crowds of people just to get to Jesus. She didn't say a word at first. She simply reached out and grabbed a hold of the fringe of his robe. Now, Jewish men uh, would wear tassels of blue twisted cords on the corners of their outer garments. And they did this as a reminder that they were uh, called to obey God's commands, to obey his word. And the Pharisees, uh, the legalistic Pharisees, they, they were very legalistic about this. They took it to extremes. They would wear more cords than they were really supposed to. They wanted to one-up each other. They wanted to impress the common people with their swag. I think that's the word the kids use today. Well, Jesus wore these cords not as a legalistic ritual, 
but as a reminder to keep his focus on his heavenly father. So when the woman reached out and touched the fringe of his robe, she would have touched these blue tassels. And why she chose to touch this part of his his garment is really unclear. But Jesus knew that someone in the crowd had touched him and had been healed. So even if it was a superstitious faith, it was a faith that Jesus honored. And I think about that in terms of our context today. You may have shown up this morning and you're thinking one way about this Jesus guy. You know, you may be thinking, I, I think I believe a little bit, but I'm not, I'm not quite there. Jesus will meet you where you're at. He will meet you where you're at. Keep in mind that Jesus was on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. He was completely surrounded by crowds of people. But this woman, she didn't allow anything to stand in her way. And when she reached out and touched Jesus' robe, the Bible says that she was immediately healed. Jesus stopped in his tracks and he asked this question, who touched me? Everyone around him denied touching him. Peter actually spoke up again, I think sarcastically, said, "Uh, Master, the whole crowd is pressing up against you. Like, like, duh, you, you were touched. Everybody's touching you. But Jesus said, no, someone deliberately touched me for I felt healing power go out from me. When the woman realized that she uh, was going to get caught, she couldn't keep this decision to herself anymore. Uh, She started to shake. She fell to the ground at the knees of Jesus. And we're given reason to believe that she then explained publicly why she had decided to touch Jesus and then to give a testimony about how she'd been healed. Any introverts in the crowd today? (laughs) You think about being isolated that long? Again, I'm, I'm kind of reading into it, but I get the sense that she wasn't the most outgoing person in the world. Having to share her story, having to talk about what she had been through publicly, that's probably, uh, probably was not on her list of things to do that day. She realized she was going to get caught. She started shaking. She fell to her knees. She shared publicly what Jesus had done. The whole crowd was silent. All eyes were on her, and she began to speak. And then after sharing in this this major moment of vulnerability, Jesus responded. In verse 48, he calls her daughter. He calls her daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Why did she need to publicly share such a personal struggle in her life? You know, we live in a culture, in a society today, we don't share a whole lot, do we? And if you're asked to share something personal, your first response is typically no. That's nobody else's business. With something so private, I mean, surely Jesus could have just pulled her to a side, talked with her one-on-one. Why, why did this happen publicly? You know, was this not extremely embarrassing for her? I don't think that it was. For starters, this public confession of faith did a lot more for her own faith. And Scripture actually reminds us why it's so important for us to confess our faith publicly. Two verses come to mind. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, If you openly declare, meaning if you use words publicly, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be, what's the word? Saved. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. 
everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, talking about Jesus, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. So yes, there is a private aspect of our faith. But faith is also meant to be lived out publicly, friends. There's a private aspect for sure. But faith is meant to be lived out publicly. And this is one of the reasons for why we ask people to give a public confession of faith before they're baptized. There's something very special, very powerful about publicly sharing your faith. Confessing these things in Jesus you know, was extremely helpful for her, but it was also a witness and a testimony for other people. And sometimes it's not all about you. <laughs> you have to remember, Jairus was standing nearby. Can you imagine for a moment the encouragement this must have been for him as he was thinking about and worrying about his daughter back home? Like sometimes we get so busy and so tied to the personal needs in our own life that we forget to look around and recognize the needs in other people's lives. I mean, I, I would think that, hey, Jesus said, yes, he's coming home. He's going he's gonna to take a look at my daughter. This too is kind of a last resort. I would make a beeline straight for home. And people trying to stop Jesus and talk to him, I'd be like, hey, that can probably wait for tomorrow. I'm like, this is serious, right? But Jesus stopped and he healed this woman. And seeing this with his own eyes, thinking about his daughter at home, you can just imagine how much of an encouragement, how much of a reassurance that would have been for Jairus. Friends, you never know who may be listening in your own circle of influence and how your faith might affect them. And this is in the home. This is, this is in your marriage with your kids. This is in your place of work. It's here at church on Sunday morning. Let's not get so busy doing church that we forget the most important things of loving God and loving people. This woman's 12 years of suffering had suddenly ended and the same Jesus who helped her was now on his way to Jairus' home to meet his daughter. And so you may feel like your faith isn't very strong today, but let me remind you that we have a strong Savior. That simple truth is huge. Are you ready for part two? Yeah. Part two. Come back next week. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not going to leave you hanging. We got time. Part two. Luke chapter 8, verses 49 through 56. While he was still speaking to her, a messenger arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. And this is what he told him. Your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. In other words, you, you've wasted time. You've taken too much time. There's no sense in coming home. But when Jesus heard what had happened, he said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just have faith and she will be healed. When they arrived at the house, Jesus wouldn't let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, James, it's the, the big three, and the little girl's father and mother. The house was filled with people weeping and wailing, but he said, stop weeping. She isn't dead. She's only sleeping. But the crowd laughed at him because they all knew she had died. Then Jesus took her by the hand and said in a loud voice, my child, get up. And at that moment, her life returned and she immediately stood up. Then Jesus told them to get her something to eat. <laughs> 
Her parents were overwhelmed, but Jesus insisted that they not tell anyone what had happened. So as the leader of the synagogue, Jairus was in charge of several things. He was in charge of the services, uh, the care of the facilities. He wore many hats. He made sure there were always people scheduled who could pray, who could read the scriptures and give the sermon. Jairus would have been a man of reputation, but also a man of wealth. So it took a lot of humility and courage for him to seek Jesus out and ask him for help. Now, you have to understand that at this point in time, chronologically, there were already several Jewish leaders who were plotting to kill Jesus. So this took a lot of faith, a lot of humility on his part to go to Jesus. When Jairus left home, his daughter was so sick that she was on the verge of death. And by the time Jesus was able to pull away from the crowds uh, to go with him, she had passed away. A messenger traveled to where they were, and he said, your daughter is dead, period. End of discussion. There's nothing else that we can do for her. There's no use troubling the teacher now. They thought, in their human minds, their human way of thinking, that Jesus could only help those who were alive. So they told Jairus to just give up. When they heard the messenger's message, Jesus gave Jairus a word of hope. I think this is an important verse. Verse 50 says, But when Jesus heard about what had happened, he said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just have faith, and she will be healed. Over and over again in the New Testament, we are commanded to not be afraid. I think the natural inclination in our lives, the condition of the human heart is fear. God says you don't have to be afraid. Instead, you can be people of faith. The scene back home was a complete mess. You know, in the first century, in Jewish culture, there were people who actually had the job. They were assigned as professional mourners. Can you imagine if that was your job today? Your title on your door, professional mourner. That seems depressing. (laughs) These people, here's what they would do. They would show up at a dying person's home and they would weep and wail in the corner while the family grieved. That is just a bunch of fakeness if you ever ask me. (laughs) I can't use other words for that, but (laughs) man, it's like you're on your way. You have a great lunch. All right, guys, now here's the game plan. When we get inside, I need to see it on your face. All right? You need to sell this one. This family's hurting. They're grieving. I need you to pretend like you've never... I need you to fake like you've never faked it before. (laughs) I mean, I think that's what was going on here. How do you just pull that out of you? Man, now I'm off track. Look what you do to me. (laughs) Professional mourners. Here we go. So these people, they would show up at a dying person's home. They would weep. They'd wail in the corner. A crowd of friends and neighbors, they'd often gather outside of the home while this was happening. I think I just want to be alone with my loved ones. It was also tradition to uh, bury someone the day that they died uh, for Jewish people. So after the girl died, she would have been washed, anointed, wrapped in grave clothes, and then buried. All of this happening within a 24-hour period. After arriving at the home with Peter, John, and James, Jesus, um, he just took command of the situation by telling the professional mourners that they weren't needed anymore. All right, you can go do that somewhere else. We're about to raise this girl from the dead. He said the girl wasn't actually dead. She was just sleeping. And 
Everybody around was, was laughing. Now, obviously, she was physically dead, but, or she was, she was physically dead, but her spirit was very much alive. Jesus knew something that they didn't. You see, in Jesus' mind, death was only sleep. And it's something that, that we don't have to be afraid of. And we talk about fear. I think at the top of people's list of fears is, is probably death. But this imagery is used so often in the New Testament to describe the death of believers. First Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18. It's a passage that I often read at graveside services. It's a great passage to read if you want to learn more about what happens to believers when we die. But we can understand it simply like this. Sleep. Sleep is a normal experience that we don't fear. And we don't have to fear death either. In Christ, we don't have to fear death. Warren Wearsby says it this way, that um, it is the body that sleeps, not the spirit, for the spirit of the believer goes to be with Christ. And so we know the New Testament tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When our loved ones pass away, if they are in Christ, they are in the presence of Jesus. Amen? The professional mourners, they laughed because they knew this girl was dead and that death was final. Friends, what they failed to realize is that they were standing in the presence of Jesus who is the resurrection and the life. He took the girl by the hand. He spoke in Aramaic, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, arise. These words weren't a magic formula, but they were a command from the Lord of life. Her spirit immediately returned to her body. She got up and started walking around the room. Jesus told them to get her something to eat. Get this girl some food. (laughs) It's likely that during her illness, she hadn't eaten much of anything and she was weak. Jesus also told the family to not spread the news about what had happened this, this moment was just too personal and special for the masses at this time. But still, the word got out. You know why the word got out? Because you cannot hide life. You can't hide life. Resurrection is a picture of the way Jesus saves lost sinners. Outside of Jesus' own resurrection, the Gospels record three other resurrection stories. Now you have the widow's son, who was raised, Jairus' daughter, and then can someone tell me the third? Lazarus. And with all three of these stories, there was evidence of someone going from death to life. It wasn't just words. The widow's son started talking, Jairus' daughter started walking, and Lazarus shook off his grave clothes. When a lost sinner is saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, there is always evidence of new life. Always. You can tell that a person truly knows Jesus by the way they talk, by the way they walk, and by the way they dress. Their new spiritual clothes that they put on. Friends, you cannot hide life. John chapter 10, verse 10, we read this last week. Jesus said, the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. But my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying, and what's the word? Life. Jesus came to give life. 
and you cannot hide life. As I wrap up today's message, I need to ask you, do you know the Lord of life? Do you know Jesus? Have you believed in Jesus, repented of your sin, confessed your faith publicly? And have you been immersed? Have you been baptized into Christ? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 says, For God says, at just the right time, I heard you. Jesus says, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Salvation. 